Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Much of Ezekiel is spent emphasizing God's anti-locality namely that there is no structure or land to which the biblical God is chained. In Ezekiel, God moves freely upon the earth outside the control of his subjects. With this in mind, the book's closing verse is a kind of literary surprise. What does Ezekiel mean when he says, the name of the city shall be called, the Lord is there? What are the implications of the last four chapters of Ezekiel for the meaning of the entire book? How does all of this illumine our understanding of the biblical writer's perspective on history? You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 60. I can't believe I'm saying that, Richard. This is episode 60 of the Bible as Literature podcast. And it was a milestone also because we came to the end of Ezekiel this week for the Ephesus School. So I thought you handled that really well because we decided at the last minute to just take the last four chapters so that we could take a week off and then start up with Galatians. So you drew some interesting conclusions pulling that last section together, and I thought it'd be great if you could share your thoughts and observations with our podcast listeners this week. Well, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about recently is how the source of evil is when human beings feel that they don't have enough. As soon as they believe that prosperity is coming to an end, they do anything they can in order to get what they need. They supplicate the Lord, they supplicate the rich, they supplicate the king, they supplicate foreign powers, foreign kings, foreign rulers. They do whatever they can to get. And as they do this, they neglect those who are needy and they neglect the poor. And taking care of the poor is always an admission that you have enough. Are rich people giving enough to the poor? That's a different question. But once you are giving them, then you are admitting that you have enough. And this is what is supposed to be happening, is the human being is supposed to live with the understanding that they have everything they need from the Lord. This is how the garden in Eden was put together. It was put together as a place for human beings to live. And to such an extent, they don't even have to work. You have trees that produce food that water themselves. A mist comes up and waters it. You don't even have to water it. You have animals, and why are the animals created? In order to be helpers for human beings. In Eden, human beings had it as well as they're ever going to have it. And we know this. (laughs) We know that we're not living in Eden now, right? Right. So why did Adam fall? Because he had everything he needed. And he said, oh, but I need that too. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, I need that. I need the knowledge of good and evil. Because with the knowledge of good and evil, then he knows what's coming. And I was recently reflecting on this, that good and evil are not necessarily moral categories. When the rains come at a good time, it's good. When there's a flood, it's evil. Well, I know our listeners are going to smile when I say this, but good and evil are functional. I think the sin with respect to Adam is that he was put in the gan, in the garden in Genesis. He was put 
under the authority of God's instruction, right? The tree that he stumbles over is the metaphor for God's teaching, his Torah. But when he sought to possess the knowledge of good and evil, he sought to be judge. That is the problem. Because the one who decides who gets thrown out with the brush to be burned, the one who separates the wheat from the chaff is God through his instruction. So Adam was not satisfied with God's rule that he was not to partake of the fruit of that tree. Therein lies the problem. Exactly. And we see this throughout the history of humanity from the moment that human beings came up with divination all the way up to Google's statistical analysis what does the human being want to know? Is good coming or is evil coming? What's coming? Because if good is coming or if evil is coming, then he can plan what he's going to do in order to make sure that he has enough resources for later on, right? But the human being was supposed to be satisfied with having everything they needed right now. You want to be judged so that you can judge and discern and plan, but you also want to be judged so that after the fact, when you make out like a bandit, you can self-justify. Because if you can plan and judge, and you are the judge, at the end you can say, well, whatever I did I think was fine, and I think they're the ones who are wrong. And this is the trail that leads to the formation of the religious community in the Old Testament. Exactly. In the end of Ezekiel, God is now laying out the society, the land, the place, the kingdom, the city that he has always wanted and finally laying it out the way it should look. And the first thing that happens in the section of 45 through 48 is he apportions out parcels of land for each of the tribes. And they're perfect rectangles, and there's also at the center rectangle, there's a square in the middle of it for the city and all this. But what is this land for? Agricultural society will tell you what land is for. It's to produce food. All these giant tracts of land are produced so that the human beings who live there have what they need. He's starting a trickle-up economy where he provides food to the people who are living on the land. Well, what about the people at the center? What about the king? What about the priests? What happens is that as they are granted all the food that they need, all the wealth, the produce, then a portion of that they set aside. And he is meticulous. God is meticulous in this reading of how you measure it. This measure is going to be this much, and this measure is going to be this much, and he lays it all out for them. He's doing business. He's doing business because a certain portion goes to the Zadokites, and they receive a portion of the produce, and this is what they live off of. They don't farm. They live off of it because you have to have people who are running the city. You have to have the priests. They get a portion from the land, and he's got it all set up. God has it all set up so that everybody knows ahead of time how much they're giving. There's a, a flat tax <laughs> for all the, all the politicos out there. It's a flat tax, trickle-up economy is what it is. Everybody gets what they get from the land. They already know what portion, one-tenth or one out of 200 sheep or whatever, and it goes up. And this is how they offer. And for the politicos, I guarantee you that in God's household, 47 senators would not send a letter to Babylon opposing God's decision in Ezekiel. <laughs> and true. if they did, there would be no more 47 senators. They, you know, they tried doing that in Hosea, and it didn't end <laughs> up well for them. They sent a letter, and it didn't work. Right. Um, it also happened in Amos, so it, it happened more than once. It never ended well. So here they get everything they need, and it is passed on to the, what's interesting, the ruling class, so to speak. But these ruling classes are completely dependent on the 
people following the rules so that they're taxing correctly, so that they're giving what they need to give. This is what they live off of. So that's how that begins. So we already have a land where everybody has what they need, and it goes into such detail who owns which portion. Now, again, we talked before about the problem of sacrifice. We went through that. But I think one thing that's interesting here, and I mentioned this on Sunday when I talked about it, is that they offer a bull or a he-goat or a ram, and this is part of the sacrifice that they offer. And I want people to understand those people who are not from an agricultural background. When you have a flock, the male is more valuable than the females because you can have one male and it can impregnate the entire flock. That one male is what's going to keep the flock alive. So offering not only a bull, but it says a young bull. So you can't say, oh, I have a bull and it's already probably produced as much as it's going to produce. So probably it's time to sacrifice it. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. It has to be a young bull. But is it any old young bull? No, it's a young bull without blemish because you could say, oh, you know, I have a bull and it's missing its testicles and it can't produce any more offspring, so it's a good one to sacrifice. No, no, it doesn't work that way. Malachi dealt with that earlier. But you offer the most valuable out of the flock. Similarly, there's only one holiday that you continue to celebrate once you're in the land, which is Passover, because it's Passover that reminds the people that you were once slaves to Pharaoh, but now are slaves to God. And as you live in the kingdom of God, in this eschatological kingdom that's being described here in Ezekiel, you are now remembering every year still that you're in that kingdom. So it's not enough to say, okay, we've got everything now. You're still required to give up that thing that's most valuable, and you're required to celebrate that day, to remember that day when you came from under Pharaoh to under God. Even in the heavenly kingdom, there's still Passover. It puts a different spin on how we would think of Pascha, because Pascha is, oh, he's risen. We celebrate that he's risen. Yeah. In the kingdom of heaven, what do you need to celebrate? He's risen, because there he is. He's right there. We know he's risen, because I just saw him, right? <laughs> that's not a big deal. Right. But what you have to understand is that you were consigned to death, and now you have the ability to have life. And this is why you celebrate Pascha. Lent is understanding that we were consigned to death and that we have the opportunity to live because of God's generosity to us, his charity towards us. And by understanding that, then we can understand what the heck is going on with the crucifixion and resurrection. Well, this is what's so interesting. And I said this years ago, using this language of consignment, which is Pauline language in translation. You have all of these characters who are party to the death of Jesus from all sides, people close to him, people for him, people against him, all these different characters in the Gospels, essentially escorting Jesus to his execution. And the assembly gathered to commemorate Holy Week is party to that escort, right? It's like the podcast we did last year where we talked about the fact that in the liturgy, we are the ones that are cutting up the body of Jesus. We have his blood on our hands, if you will. So that just really deepens the metaphor because you're being given this opportunity in Ezekiel. And obviously, the Ezekielian opportunity is the DNA of the New Testament opportunity, which is extended to the Gentiles. You were consigned to death, but I'm offering you life. And then suddenly you now consign my son to death. And ironically, just as the shame of the animal skins was a way of dealing with the misbehavior of Adam and Eve, the shame of our mistreatment of Jesus, right? We mistreated God's creatures. We shed blood in Genesis, which was a sin, in order to atone. And now we're mistreating Jesus. It's a very interesting dynamic in Scripture 
because you're hoping that we will look upon the one, and this is where the connection with Zechariah makes sense, because the hope is by allowing us to do this, that we would look upon the one whom we've pierced and feel that shame and amend our ways. And finally mourn. The, so that done. we could avail ourselves of the gift of being able to have the opportunity to live as God offered in the garden. It's a really profoundly generous God who is presented in Scripture. Profoundly generous. And that's precisely what we have here, that everyone has the portion of land that they need in order to live. And then as we get to chapter 47, we have the springs of water coming out of the city. You have the rivers coming out, again, recalling Eden. And they water everything. Again, understanding the importance of this. When you're at the spring, you are at the source of the water. You know that there's going to be water. When you go downstream, you don't know what's going to happen to the water upstream. You're safer if you're there at the spring. This is the source of generosity. I mean, the spring is in the ancient Near East is very often related to a deity, related to revelation of a deity. But there's something important about the source. You know, it's interesting because in English, we have source, which can be either a spring or something that produces something else, anything. The source is where it comes from, you know? A lot of cities are named after the spring that they found, you know, because a city then forms around that spring. And there's so much water that it's over Ezekiel's head. I don't know what that was like in the ancient Near East, in this part of the world, to be in a river that was deeper than you. You can't even walk out through it. It's so deep. And it's full of fish, again, producing more than you need to eat. So having the waters and the source of prosperity there in chapter 47, this is what's important. After everything that's happened in Ezekiel, that you have this amazing generosity, it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking that in spite of the human being's rejection of God at every turn ever since Adam, that now God is saying, here, I'm building a garden for you again. This is what is shocking. This is why it's important that you continue the sacrifices, you continue the Passover when you're there, because the past has happened. You can't forget the past. There's no forgiveness forget. You can live in the garden in spite of all that. And what I find even more shocking is then at the end of 47, and I'm going to read this because I think it's important. In chapter 47, verse 22, and it shall come to pass that you shall divide it by lot for an inheritance unto you and to the strangers that sojourn among you, which shall beget children among you, and they shall be unto you as born in the country among the children of Israel. They shall have inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall come to pass that in what tribe the stranger sojourneth, there shall you give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. So immigration doesn't exist. Anyone can just come into the land. Not only can they live there in peace, they own the land they sit on, and they can even pass it on to their children. This is unheard of, unheard of, because even the poor American citizen can't do that in the United States. Imagine if the poor Guatemalan could do that in the United States. Unheard of. You walk in, you say, this is my land. And not only that, that person is just as American as anybody else, because that's what it's saying. Well, you had a form of this in the founding of this country when they divided up the land in squares and told the settlers to go take your square. But it's a perverted form of this because you eliminated the stranger and the foreigner or the outsider from that equation because there were Native Americans living there. Right, so even when they've tried to somehow be fair and square, literally in the way the U.S. is divided when you fly over it, it's not fair and square because it still has tribalism and self-interest at its heart. I mean, 
this is what colonialism is. It's exported tribalism, essentially. So really, I wanted to call that out because I wouldn't want anyone to hear you say this is unprecedented and say, well, wait, look, we did it. No, we didn't do it because we did it on the backs of the poor. Yeah. So you look at the land, the map that is drawn in this chapter, and it's only one piece of land in a vast world. It only goes up from Damascus to the Nile. There's a whole other world that even the biblical writers knew about. This is only one piece of the world. And that's what I find interesting. Anyone could come and live there, but they're perfectly free to live somewhere else too. This is just the Lord's land that he's setting up for his people. And his people can be anyone who wants to live in his land, but they're perfectly able to go live elsewhere too. But in this area, it's perfect prosperity for anyone who wants to be there. And for all generations, because you can pass it down. I think we should invite Ezekiel actually to come give a presentation to the U.S. Senate on Iran. I wonder what that would sound like. <laughs> I don't think it would go so smoothly for anybody. I think he'd probably be reading Hosea. <laughs> he wouldn't have to do very much. <laughs> so then finally, all the people get their portions. And then at the very end, you know, everyone gets very excited because at the very end, the very last verse, it was round about 18,000 measures and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. Everyone gets very excited because we want to go to that city where the Lord is. But I want everyone to remember that this book is the same book where we were introduced to the Lord's chariot. The Lord does not have a house. He has a mobile home. And he's going to go and park it wherever he wants to park it. And when he's tired, he's going to move along. And we saw this happen in Ezekiel. When he saw what was happening in his temple, he left. The temple in the ancient Near East was the place where you located the deity. You had the effigy of the deity there. The sacrifices were performed there. And you had priests who would come there on a regular basis to perform rituals. That's how you had the location of the deity. But in the same way that the spring is the source of prosperity for agriculture, the temple is the source of prosperity from the deity, right? So it would make perfect sense to put a temple next to a spring. I was in Mount Athos, and at Mount Athos, you can see there, there's a spring, and what's next to the spring? A shrine to the Theotokos. That's not new. That's how humanity's always done things, especially in that part of the world. So human beings use the temple in order to lock down God. You know, when we talked about the come and see, how many people say come and see talking about their church? I mean, that's the normative use. That's the, the normative unfortunately, use. Unfortunately, right. That's the unfortunate normative use. But this is assuming against Ezekiel that God goes wherever he wants. You can say come and see our temple, but you're not guaranteed that God's actually there. This is why at St. Elizabeth we have this beautiful, beautiful Byzantine articulation, beautiful Byzantine letters, inscription over the door of the entrance to the church. He is not here. He has been raised, right? Because in this metaphor of the empty tomb, you find a recounting, a restating of what we're hearing here in Ezekiel, that you can't lock Jesus in a tomb. He's going to get up and he's going to carry the Torah forward. You can't stop him. You can't control him. And if you're coming to the church on Pascha because you want to find him, he's already out in the world carrying the light of the teaching expressed right. in his beautiful procession ritual. Exactly. And then so we have this verse where it says the Lord is there. Okay, well, then this seems like it's contradicting that. Why is the Lord here when we've been told time and time again, the Lord's not there, the Lord's traveling, he's elsewhere. You know, all the time, the Lord is elsewhere. Yeah, he's not here. He's not here, and then he says the Lord is there. So that's strange. Why would that be the case? Well, it's the case because here is the land where the people have everything they need. It's a place of remembrance, of moving from under Pharaoh to under the Lord. 
It's a place where everyone has the land they need for sustenance, and anyone can move in and have what they need as well. It's unlimited, the bounty that it offers. It's a new Eden. Everything you have is there. Everything you need is there. And as I said at the beginning, the beginning of human sin is where human beings feel that they need more. Here is a land where the human being does not need more. Here is a place where the human being recognizes that he or she no longer needs more. Everything is provided for them. And it's a place you can't control because it can move anywhere at any time. It's a place that's inclusive because it can move anywhere at any time. And because the one who provides all the bounty of that place says it's for everybody. And so this, you have no control over it. So it gets back to your point about judging and controlling. It's completely beyond your reach. It's just gift, and you can take it or leave it. But only a fool wouldn't take it. And that's the only place where the Lord can abide. He can only abide in that place where prosperity is there for everyone who needs it, and there is no jealousy, there is no greed, there is no, I want one more, I want a little bit of extra. You don't need to know the good and evil that's coming along. It's funny because this vision of the kingdom is as much anti-socialist as it is anti-capitalist, because in both ideological paradigms, someone deserves and someone is owed and someone possesses. Whether it's the community that feels everyone is deserved and everyone is owed and everyone possesses, or it's the king. In both scenarios, there is human corruption and greed and possessiveness at operation, and that's why both scenarios break down. Right. The scriptural model that says it all belongs to God and it is given or withheld at his whim. For the human being, psychologically, it's the only paradigm that can produce unbridled community and generosity. I mean, anti-socialism, it doesn't get any more anti-socialist than this, where the Lord provides to the poor, the workers of the land, I guess there is no poor at this point, the workers of the land, the workers. Right. The Lord provides for the workers, and then the workers provide for the bourgeoisie. But everybody is fed and everyone is taken care of, says the Lord. Marx is not going to talk about how the poor provide for the bourgeoisie. No, Marx would like what Ezekiel is saying, in terms of his critique of the bourgeoisie. But the solution that Marx proposes versus the solution of Scripture are fundamentally different. And the assumption that Marx holds that is counter this is that Marx is assuming there's not enough for both the poor and the bourgeoisie. In this, there's the assumption that there's enough for everybody. This is the essential difference. There is enough. God created the world for there to be enough. God created human beings to be satisfied with the bounty that he gave them. Right, and the environmentalists would love this what I'm about to say, but honestly, if you look at scripture seriously, if man was content to live on the earth and to live off of the earth without taking more than he needed to survive, we wouldn't need to build cities as we learned in Genesis. We wouldn't need to build civilization. We wouldn't need all this infrastructure. We wouldn't need wars. We could simply live freely and share off of the land. It is not a crazy idea. I think it's significant that the same person who invented the city was the one who invented jealousy. Cain was unhappy that Abel got favor when he didn't, so he went to build a city. Interestingly, Cain is the one who works as a farmer, collecting grain, storing up grain, which is the first function of the city. Archaeologists will show you this. It was to store up the grain, so you would have enough for the next period. Now, I think it's interesting because there's a saying that drought is natural, famine is political. 
just because there's a drought does not necessarily mean that people have to go hungry. Exactly. And to me, this gets at a deeper question about the origins of Scripture and what's really going on with Scripture. I think, after going through Ezekiel with you and some of the many discussions we've had over the past year on the record on the podcast and off the record, I think that we are dealing with a tradition that is coming at us from the vantage point of the shepherd and the nomadic society. In other words, I don't think that some of the parallels we sometimes see with how we treat Native Americans and what's going on in scripture are incidental. I think that functionally, the Native American communities that we encountered when we came to these shores, we, I mean, my parents are from the Middle East, but your ancestors, when your ancestors came to these shores and they encountered the Native Americans, I think that it was not dissimilar from the confrontation that would have taken place in the classical world between these great empires and these poor shepherds tending their flocks in the field, or the Roman Empire and the shepherd, or the Hellenistic Empire, Alexander the Great and the shepherd. I mean, take your pick. Or Cain and Abel the shepherd. You hear it over and over again. But this, this is very interesting. It starts to make sense when you think about how important being possessionless and being at the mercy of God is wandering in the wilderness. When you think about how important this is, you begin to understand that's not about promoting some utopia where we all become shepherds. It's about scripture finding a way to show the human being that you do not have to be the slave of tyranny. You can be free like the shepherd if you let go of possession and live at the mercy of God because the empire might have the ability to exercise power over you, but that's only because you give it power. The more you give back to God, the more free you are. And if you're a shepherd, if the Romans conquer, or the Greeks conquer, or in the modern West conquers, you know, in our particular historical context, it doesn't matter because you just move your flock to the next oasis. I wish that there was more of this thinking because I think of the people who are in bad shape these days. I think of Somalia, I think of Yemen, I think of Afghanistan. You know, I remember hearing a story out of Afghanistan. A boy says to one of the soldiers, what country are you from? So used to someone coming in and another army coming and another army coming. But really, all these countries, what they have in common is that they are shepherds, and they understand that powers come and powers go. So I think to remember that being dependent on God's generosity, in spite of whatever empire may be coming through, that the secret to freedom is understanding that you're not beholden to any empire, that you're only beholden to God. And this is how God sets us free. And I'll never forget, along the lines of what you're talking about, the inscription I saw on a cell wall in Abu Ghraib which was that I do not fear man, I fear God. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank you very much, Father. Take care. Have a good week. Thanks. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.